Hello and welcome. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, with David Cooper, and I'm your host, David Cooper. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, the show where no one's listening and no one cares, the show where every episode's the last episode. It's Monday, June the 19th. I turned 37 yesterday, and I'm on a trip in beautiful Copenhagen. We're going to open up the archive this week, playing some interviews that I've loved from the past. This one is with Commander Astronaut Chris Hadfield that he did with me just after he wrote a new book. So let's Let's hear the thing. by Commander Chris Hadfield. The man's a polymath, a retired astronaut, former fighter pilot, a musician, and a New York Times bestselling author. His novel, The Apollo Murders, a thriller that takes us to the center of the Cold War and the space race. Chris, honestly, thank you for taking the time to be here with me. David, it is a pleasure for me and, and happy to be talking with you and everybody across the country. Fantastic. And doubly so because your little puppy has a cold, as I understand it. Yeah, Henry got uh, like a little kid with a cold. He's got the sniffles and snot coming out of his nose and he's got a cough and he's feeling small and got a bit of a fever. So we took him to the vet and he's got the good anti-cold medicine, but but he's having a small day as a small dog. Okay. So I'm a little nervous to talk to you. Uh, I want to know how you deal with nerves. I take medication. Beta blockers works great for me. I come from the Jewish people, long line of pill poppers. But what do you do, say, when you're sitting like a schmuck on a launch pad with, I don't know, tons of explosives underneath you about to launch into space? It's about the same as going into an interview, I think. Yeah, it's uh, thousands of tons of explosive, actually. And uh, and you're not a schmuck. <laughs> no, I'm the uh, schmuck. I'm the schmuck. No matter what, uh, what, what uh, faith you, you came from. So the way I deal with nerves is to uh, get ready for the things that are probable to happen. And the greatest antidote for fear is competence. Wow. And, and so if you know how to do something like, you know, do a radio show or, uh, or ride a bike or fly a rocket ship, then you have a lot more going for you than just fear wow. and the, and, you know, adrenaline and stuff like that. So, so yeah, so I spent most of my life getting ready for my life and therefore I didn't have to be f afraid of my life. I like that. Um, but I do feel personally attacked when you say the greatest antidote to fear is competence. Cause every day I'm anxious, Chris. <laughs> well, actually, there's a there's a great uh, spark of creativity in anxiousness and nerves, you know, that that physiologically changes your body and gets you ready or maybe. But nobody wants a nervous astronaut. <laughs> no, they don't. Or, or a scared astronaut you know that i don't know if you ever saw that movie don knots in the reluctant astronaut but it was kind of the full send-up of that but no when, when you when you get on an airline next time you get on WestJet at air canada and you look through to the cockpit you would prefer if the pilots weren't crying in fear and <laughs> you know rubbing their lucky rabbit's foot you'd prefer if they look sort of calm and competent and yeah. And that and they are because of years and years and years of training. And so 
that's how I've learned to deal with fear. Okay, I want to jump uh, to the ISS. This is late night, so let's have a little fun. I did hear secondhand. Wait, you can't jump to the ISS. I'm sorry. No matter how hard you try, it's not not going to work for you, David. We're talking from topic to topic, not physical locations. Okay, okay. so all right, I'm with you. I heard secondhand from our science expert, this a gentleman named Dan Riskin, that the International Space Station smells like a porta potty after being 21 years of it being basically an open air toilet. Firstly, is there truth to that? Dan's never actually been there. So it's (laughs) good that you're asking me actually. And I like Dan and I respect Dan. The space shuttle after a week or two in space, it smelled like a, a, like, you know, been seven people in a Dodge van on a cross country for two weeks with the toilet inside. The space shuttle was, was not a pleasant smelling vehicle, but the space station is scent free. Really? Uh, my entire time in six months on, on the space station, I never smelled another human being. And it is, I mean, we, we share communal toilets in there to, to get to the, you know, open sewer uh, analogy. You don't even smell standard toilet smells because nothing, you know, sits, nothing, nothing is open to the airflow. Everything's pulled down into the toilet by by airflow and it's all really self-contained and isolated. So it's more like the smell of a, of a hospital or a, uh, a laboratory where it's super well purified and clean. And no, it's, it's a really desirable uh, breathing atmosphere on a space station. Well, I'm glad we proved Dan wrong. Um, this might be foreshadowing a bit into the plot of the book, which we're going to get to in a few moments. But in terms of bathroom protocol, is there tension between the various nations, the Russians, the Americans, the Canadians with respect to the toilets? Uh, the Russians built the toilets. They build the best toilets. Um, we have one down in the primarily Russian built section and one in one uh, module or wing or whatever of the predominantly American built section. And uh, so normally you're six or seven people on board in two toilets, which isn't a bad ratio, you know, for a household. No. And uh, we take turns. Uh, the toilets are really complicated because they have to work without gravity. And, and also you don't have a city sewage system or an outhouse or something. You have to do something with the liquid and solids. And it's a really a life important decision because the stuff that comes out of your body can be unhealthy. So yeah, we take it seriously. I know an awful lot about space plumbing. And uh, <laughs> I, I, there was this one day, uh, David, where I was helping two of the Russians go outside on a spacewalk. So I was getting them dressed. But at the, meanwhile, the, the, the toilet in my end of the space station had failed partway through so so like i'm uh, i'm i'm having to go back and rip this entire toilet apart it's got these really nasty chemicals and you know pre-treat chemicals and a bunch of things and a whole bunch of moving parts and then i would wipe my hands off go down help these cosmonauts get into their spacesuits next step back more toilet repair back and forth and back and forth until finally i got to the moment where the two cosmonauts including roman romanenko a, a good friend went outside they opened the hatch they were outside i came back i put the last piece of the toilet in place i threw the switch in the wall and it made the the, the great noise of the space toilet coming to life and it was maybe my most triumphant day in space flight the day i did both <laughs> both those things simultaneously i love the things that we're personally proud of and the things that the public thinks we should be proud of and i love that that was uh that was something for you victory <laughs> um okay so you captured our hearts when you recorded david bowie's space odyssey from the iss wait 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 space oddity 
That's embarrassing. I am dyslexic and I was reading my notes. I know it's Space Oddity, but thank you. And the tune's an obvious choice, but were there some tracks that didn't make the cut? I'm thinking maybe Scatman John's I'm a Scatman, perhaps Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart. Anything that would have been the number two pick? I don't have that weird double resonance that Bonnie has in her voice there. It's weird the way, I mean, she does that song better than anybody ever could. Um, I There's a guitar, a Canadian guitar up on the space station. It's been there since 2001 permanently it's part of our psychological support equipment and there's lots of astronauts who are guitar players of various levels i'm one of them i wrote uh, and recorded a whole album of music up there and then i did joint ventures uh, co-writing songs with other bands i did a thing with the chieftains for that one we did moon dance which would be fairly predictable and then i wrote a song with ed robertson of the bare naked ladies a song called is somebody singing which if you're paying attention the initials are iss uh, which is International Space Station. Sure. And and I recorded that song and performed it live with 700,000 kids simultaneously. And then the whole album of music that I wrote and co-wrote with my brother that I wrote and recorded up on the space station called Space Session Songs from a Tin Can. So there's there was music almost every night. After I finished all the work, in the privacy of my little quarters there, I squeezed that guitar in with me. And if I had any energy left at all, I tried to write music. But the idea for Space Oddity, no, that that came from um, from the internet and from my son who was helping me with social media. He said, Dad, you got to record this song. Uh, lots of people want you to. That's the and one. So that, that was the genesis of doing Space Oddity. And most songs... They think, you know, they have a space theme, but most of them are actually just metaphors for loneliness. Yeah. So, and it's not a lonely place. You see everybody on earth every day, you know, which is more than anyone on earth can say. You, you get to see the whole planet 16 times a day. You're surrounded by friends. You're, you're busy as can be. You're talking to people all around the world. So I, I don't know why some artists think space flight is lonely. And you even see it in movies, you know, like First Man and Ad Astra. It's become almost a meme or something, but that's not the truth. Space flight is incredibly rich and fun and human. It's not lonely at all. Did microgravity change the way a guitar plays? Uh, it changed the way you hold a guitar okay. and there's nothing holding in place. So yeah, it's, it's like playing a guitar in the middle of a swimming pool. It's weird. One of the top comments on that YouTube video is as follows. Chris is so focused on his music career that he trained for years to become a qualified astronaut just to film this music video. Respect, man. That's a lot of fun. I love the tongue so far in the cheek. That's a good way to talk if you can do it. I have huge respect for people that can actually make a living playing music because it's such a demanding and, and fickle business. And I'll stick with what I'm good at, but I'm glad to be able to play some music also. Okay, we're going to go to break and then come back with Chris Hadfield, Commander Chris Hadfield. He's a polymath, a retired astronaut, former fighter pilot, musician, and a New York Times bestselling author. We're going to come back and talk about his new novel, The Apollo Murders. Here, of course, Commander Chris Hadfield for our discussion. He's a polymath, a retired astronaut, former fighter pilot, a musician, and a New York Times bestselling author. His new novel, The Apollo Murders, a thriller that takes us to the center of the Cold War and the space race. You know, Chris, you've had a lot of firsts in your career. You were the first Canadian space mission specialist, first to operate the Canada Arm in orbit, first to do a spacewalk to command the International Space Station. But now, most notably, it's your first time sitting down and being interviewed by David Cooper. It may be the most important thing you've done. 
<laughs> Secondly, it's your first fiction novel. You want to tell me a little bit about that transition into being a fiction writer here? Yeah, it's alternative history fiction and very uh, sort of technical scientific. It's definitely thriller fiction um, set in the spring of 73. If you had just spent 21 years as an astronaut, David, and, and six months in space, you know, what would you do with that experience? And you know, how do you how do you explain it to yourself? But then how do you share it with other people? And a lot of the things that you you lift is you know, polymath, a lot of that is just my effort to try and not squander the responsibilities and the rareness of the experience that I had. And so that's you know why I write music and teach at university and, and tie in with schools and did a master class and and help space businesses and run a space tech incubator and all. It's it's so that I'm not wasting all of that trusted effort. But I thought, what if I had the skill to be able to to make this into a thriller fiction book so that you could really be in there when an event happens and you get to have the reaction of all of the characters around it. So you can really get a, a visceral sense of what is this actually like? You know, the, the little stories that would never get told in, a, uh, in just a straight factual book. And so that was part of my impetus just to really find another way to share the nitty gritty and the reality and the fun and the underside of space flight. And I'm delighted how well the book's doing because so many people reading it now, which means they're, they're, you know, they're hopefully they're really getting it in a way they never had a chance to get it before. Yeah. The reviews have been really positive to paraphrase one review by novelist, uh, John Verdon, the story of cold war tensions, dark secrets, and an ego gone over the edge builds to an explosive and satisfying finale. You know, a lack of explosive and satisfying finale is what ruined my first marriage, <laughs> but enough about me, Chris. Um, how does it feel to have a novel that's been so well received? It's a huge relief because it's a big gamble, right? You don't just write a novel in a weekend. At least I don't. It took me a long time and a lot of concentrated effort and a lot, you know, it's like learning to fly or anything else. You have this idea of what the other end is going to look like, but there's an awful lot of steps to go through to get there. And I had to teach myself how to write fiction and then try and do it competently and then and then tell a story in a way that people just need to get to the next page or when you get to the end of one chapter you know hey it's two in the morning but man I'm going to read the next chapter you know that's what I was trying to do and what I finally finished on January 10th I think of last year when I, I typed the last word of the book then it's like, man, I've got this little secret now, but I'm about to release it. And is it going to be a complete bomb? You know, like, is anybody going to want to read this book? What have I done here? It's a gamble. You know, it's kind of putting yourself out there. And so it's it's really delightful. I think it's a good story and I, I'm really happy with it. So it's really nice to have other people have the same opinion that that they're happy with it and they think it's a good story. You know, where it's going to lead. I'm writing the, the serial, the next in the series right now. And and we've got uh, multiple movie and, and TV series people talking to us about it. So, so, you know, so it's, and as you say, you know, lots of people who might know better have said it's a really good book. So, so that's, it's very uh, much a relief, but also uh, really encouraging me to, to continue to, to be a fiction writer. Okay. And in terms of uh, life passions, cause it seems like you can, you just do everything, Chris, where does writing fiction stack up? 
Oh, it's a lot of fun. And, and there's different stages of life, right? I mean, I was a downhill ski racer in the in my teens. How can every teens. sentence that comes out of your mouth, you're something new, Chris. Well, it's true. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I wasn't like on the Olympic team or something, but for the folks that raced in Ontario in the in the 80s, you know, I was B card. So so you know, that's okay. It's a pretty good downhill racer. And it was fun and it really challenged me. And that that was a big thing of what I was doing, you know. And I was a full-time ski instructor one winter, and then I taught racing racing a lot. And, and, but you know, that's not something you necessarily want to be doing in your sixties. And I was a fighter pilot. That's a huge demand and a big responsibility, but there's a phase of life where you do that. But now I've gathered a lot of experience and I, I, you know, I'm on the board and are advising many companies because I've got the skill set and the, and the understanding to be able to do those things. But what a, what an interesting time of life to try and turn my attention to, to taking all these life's experiences and turning it into a really interesting fiction book. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's lots of stuff, you know, I'm a lousy artist. I can't draw or paint. I'm a terrible dancer. You and I both. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not, you know, there's lots of stuff. I'm never going to, you know, win a Stanley cup, but I'm, you know, there's lots of stuff that, that are just beyond me, but the stuff that I have any sort of knack for and that interests me, I, I try and make them part of my life and, and then do them as well as I can and see what comes next. Chris, in just a, in just a few moments here, can you walk me through the plot of the book? Just sort of set it up and give a little teaser of what it's about. Uh, uh, the Apollo murders, it's alternative history thriller fiction set in the spring of 73. I launched Apollo 18, which was a real uh, space flight that Nixon had canceled, but I had him reverse his decision. And then it launches from uh, the United States and it goes to a secret spy Soviet space station that almost nobody knows about that really existed called Almaz that was armed with a machine gun mounted to the outside. And that's all real. And the Apollo mission goes there and then it goes for various reasons. Then it goes on to the moon uh, and there's some uh, amazing things happen. And there was a a very poorly known uh, Soviet explorer, a rover, a robot on the moon called Lunahod. And uh, and it's discovered something. And so Apollo 18 is headed there. And then the the whole story keeps rising and and building towards uh, the return and the splashdown into the Pacific Ocean uh, with some pretty amazing events just north of Hawaii. And not to give anything away, but is the Apollo murders with an S. So at least two people die. (laughs) It's the law of math. Um, Okay, so you mentioned this actual space station, this Russian space station with the machine gun. Is there any other insider knowledge from being an actual astronaut that helped you write this novel? Enormous. Yeah, enormous. Just, I mean, I, I, I served as an astronaut for 21 years. I worked in mission control as NASA's chief Capcom for 25 shuttle flights. I was NASA's director of operations in Russia. I lived in Russia for five years as an astronaut. I, I was the pilot of a Russian rocket ship, the Soyuz. And, and I, I was on board space station Mir. I was commander. I'm the only Canadian to have ever commanded a spaceship. So all of those things gave me a huge amount of just technical, but also intuitive understanding of what it's really like. And so, yeah, there's no way the book could have been written any other way. And only occasionally did I need to like phone a friend and call up one of the guys who walked on the moon or, or some of the really detailed experts uh, to, to make sure that I got my facts right. Most of the way through, I could rely on just the stuff that I knew or the stuff that's readily available on the internet. So so I, I challenge everybody who reads the book, please find any mistakes you can in there. Um, <laughs> and oh, one last thing, when you get to the end of it, David, I actually put uh, author's notes at the end 
for all the stuff in the book that is real, the real characters, over half the characters are real people and, and the real events that, that are the um, kind of the guideposts of, of the plot of the Apollo murders. You talk about the end of the book, but in terms of that imaginative feeling you get when you finish a good novel, what are you hoping readers will experience when they put it down? Uh, they should uh, be satisfied with the story and that their big questions finally got answered, but they should be hungering for what happened next, right? Wow, these are interesting people. And and this is just a little thing that happened. You know, what, what goes on next? So uh, if I've written the book right, people should learn a lot about spaceflight. They should really enjoy the rollicking story that happens. And when they finish it, they should be looking forward to, to hearing what happens next to the main characters that are in the Apollo murders. Chris, I love it. Thanks for being here. Uh, my pleasure. Good to chat with you. Honestly, Chris, the pleasure was all mine. 